0: 1986, uh, it was the summer before Herschel's first year on the Cowboys. So he'd been playing in USFL. Remember he was drafted and he went to play in like the upstart league. And then he came to play in the NFL. So this was the summer before he had had not even played a down for the Cowboys yet. But it was a big deal that they had signed him. It was a big deal. I don't know if you all remember what a big deal that was to get Herschel Walker on the Cowboys because they were struggling at that time. And uh, we heard that Herschel Walker, so I'm from Bedford, we heard that Herschel Walker was going to be speaking at the First United Methodist Church in Bedford. And we were beside ourselves with excitement. So we went down there and we went into the sanctuary. It was packed and they started singing songs and they sang and sang and sang because Herschel had not shown up. And Herschel was late. And this was back in the days before cell phones. I don't guess they knew if Herschel was actually going to show up. But we just sang and sang and sang. And after we would sang for over an hour, Herschel walked in. I mean, it was a big deal. When he walked in the room, everybody got excited that he was there. And so I was there with my mom, Betty. Uh, We could call her and talk about it, but I'll spare you that this time. Uh, And my brother, Kyle, we went down there. And uh, he got up there, and I'll have to say the speech that Herschel Walker gave was, you know, it was mostly incoherent. Uh, kind of a stream of consciousness speech, uh, but, I, but it was heartfelt. And he promised us, he said, now I want you all listen to me and be quiet. It was mainly kids in there. I want you all listen to me and be quiet. And if you all listen to me and be quiet, I'll stay until every last person gets an autograph. That's what he told us. And so we were excited about that, though he was gonna we all got to shake his hand and meet him. And uh, but I'll remember, never forget to this day, and my kids have heard this story many times, right? <laughs> so because every time we drive by the first United Methodist Church in Bedford, I say, Y'all know what happened there? I saw Herschel Walker give a talk there. So he's standing there looking at all these kids, and he says, Y'all listen to me. When you're a mama tells you to get up on Sunday morning and go to church, you better do what she says. And so then for the next 10 years, every Sunday morning, my mom would come in our room and she would say, y'all remember what Herschel Walker said? You have to get up and go to church. And uh, we all promised Herschel that day that if our mama told us to get up and go to church, we were gonna get up and go to church. And so Betty really ran with that. Uh, for It would be 17 years old and she'd come in the room. You remember Herschel said, get up. Herschel Walker was considered a one-man offense on the football field, Uh, uh, and because of Herschel Walker, the Cowboys won three Super Bowls uh, because they traded him and uh, for all the draft picks, and he certainly had a fair share of controversy and trouble. But you know what, for the third grader and fifth grader sitting in there that day, that hot summer night in Bedford, he told us, you better mind your mama. That was his message to us, and so I was mowing the other day, and I, you know, you start mowing the yard, and and used to, I would listen to music, or listen to preaching, and now I just mow, and I listen to the lawnmower, and all these thoughts come into my mind, and, and I, you know, I found myself, as I was mowing, getting discouraged, and concerned about people's lives and just different conversations that you have. And, you know, you, as a pastor, you carry people's burdens. You carry a lot of secrets that you can't really share. And, um, and you feel like you get up here in the pulpit and you preach and you bring an argument into the pulpit every week to proclaim God's word. And you do this over and over again to people that you love so much. And yet you live in a world and you, you have people in the church even that listen to you and, and come to talk to you, but, but then uh, refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ. So that's discouraging, isn't it, to get up every week and say, this is what God says. <clears throat> and people say, eh, okay, walk out, forget what you even said, right? You know what's even more discouraging than that? When you realize you're the preacher and you do the same thing. That you hear God's word and then you walk away and forget what it says. So I was sitting here and I was being, just getting, you know, the yard was looking better, but I was feeling worse. And, and so I started thinking about this story out of John chapter 2. Of course, I preached John. We did a Sunday school lesson in John. and The account of the wedding at Cana came to my mind specifically One sentence in that story, as I was mowing, just kind of popped into my brain. And of course, this is something that is spoken, a sentence spoken by one of the most famous mamas in all of history, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus at the wedding. She looks at the servants and she says to the servants, and here's Jesus standing here. And she says, you all better do whatever he tells you to do. Now, Just like Herschel told me to listen to my mama, I think in this case we need to listen to Jesus' mama. And these words have been ringing in my ear for a couple of weeks now. Do whatever he tells you. How many issues that we're dealing with are the result of the fact that we're not doing what he's told us to do? So let's look at this passage and learn that a life yielded in obedience to Jesus is costly and difficult but it is rich with joy and rewards. If we were going to sum up the entire message in a sentence, we would say a life yielded in obedience to Jesus is costly and difficult, but it is rich with joy and rewards. Look there in your Bibles at John chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now I'm not I'm going to just kind of go through the story and talk about it. I won't read it first because I know everyone's very familiar with the story. So, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Cana is about four miles, nearly a three-hour walk from Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And we're going to assume that's where Mary was living at the time. So the uh, third day after he calls Nathanael, there's a wedding at Cana. It's in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, she wasn't just there as a friend, but she seems to be there as some sort of organizer of the wedding. She was like the wedding planner. How do, why do we think this? Because she was having something to do with the food. You know, we had a graduation party the other night. Lori was helping us out. Lori was carrying all the food around. Well, that seems to be something Mary's concerned about here because she becomes concerned that there's no wine, and then she tells the servants what to do. So she's there, and, and she's in, a, in some sort of a managerial role at this wedding or coordinator role. And, and it says in verse 2 that Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, says something I think is interesting. He said, you know, the first thing that Jesus does uh, uh, in a public ministry is he goes to a party, he goes to something that's happy, he goes to a wedding, so that gives us understanding that we can be happy, we can enjoy one another's company. He goes to a wedding, which is an endorsement of marriage, and Ryle says that every marriage should be a place where Jesus and his disciples are welcome. And here was a wedding, here was a marriage getting started, and they had invited Jesus and his disciples there in verse 2. That's the setting. And then we see the dilemma in verse 3. Literal translation would be, when the wine failed, or when the wine ran out. Uh, boy, a Jewish wedding would last for, could last for days. And the people who were hosting the wedding, the, the uh, father and mother of the bride, were res- of the groom, excuse me, were responsible for hosting this wedding and making sure that there was plenty of food and plenty to drink. And at this celebration where Jesus and his disciples were, the wine ran out. That would be a great social embarrassment to whoever was uh, throwing this wedding. And so the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus in verse 3, and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's lots of ways we can understand what Jesus is saying there. Some people think, oh, mom, I'm not here to do miracles. Other people have said Jesus was at a wedding, but he was ultimately thinking about his wedding at the end of time. Jesus was thinking about the wine and the wine that he was going to provide. What is wine a symbol for when we think about the gospel? Blood. That Jesus was going to provide the wine for his wedding, for his disciples, for his bride. But he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. I think that what Jesus is saying is this, this sort of thing is not my concern. That those people having wine at the wedding is not my concern. Jesus had other concerns. We're going to see what the other concern was as we look at the story. But he says they have no wine. And I think that what Jesus is concerned about from the very beginning of his ministry and what Jesus is concerned about now is the glory of God. And so let me ask you a question. As we go through this story, I'll set the question up and say this. In your life, are you more concerned about the wine or about the glory of God? Let's say that the wine are the temporal problems. The wine, are the, the, the wine is the things that are going wrong in your life right now that everybody's upset about. Y'all ever tend to be that way? You know, we can, we, can, we can know for sure ultimately where our life is headed. That one day we'll be with God in glory and that, uh, uh, that if, if we're Christians... We know that the future is secure. Can't, don't we, didn't we all get up and come to church this morning because that's what we really believe? Don't we really believe that God's got everything in His hands and He's taking care of us? And yet how, how small of a burr under your saddle does it take to completely take your mind off of all that? Just the smallest thing can throw us off our game. Isn't that true? I know that's so true for me. And Jesus is reminding his mom, and he could be reminding us today. I'm not concerned about that. Okay? Now, is he ultimately going to take care of that? Yes, he's going to take care of that problem. That's going to work out. But he wants his mother to know that what his chief concern, about, uh, chief concern is about is his hour. His hour. What he came here to do. What does Jesus refer to as his hour in the book of John? His death, his sacrificial death, his mission. Jesus is concerned about his mission. He's not concerned about the wine. Jesus is concerned about the glory of God. He's not concerned about the social embarrassment that might come to the people that are hosting this wedding. So he tells her that, and then in verse 5, his mother says to the servants, and this is what I would underline if I was you, do whatever he tells you. Because that was definitely a command to the servants. That's definitely a command that you can take too. Do whatever he tells you. She knew enough about our son. She had enough confidence in what the angels had told her at the very beginning of his life. She knew that she could say this to the servants. You can blindly obey whatever he tells you to do because of who he is. You don't have to follow Jesus with some latent skepticism. You don't have to wonder if Jesus is going to make a mistake when He tells you to do something and it's going to wind up being the wrong thing to do. Is that what's keeping some of us from obeying Jesus, a lack of trust? You don't have to feel that way. You can trust Jesus 100%. If you can read in God's Word and receive a command from God's Word, it's never going to lead you down the wrong path. It's never going to be a mistake to do what he tells you to do. Is it going to feel hard, and difficult, costly? Yes. Might it even contradict other messages that you're receiving from other people who really want the best for you? Yes, it might. And you might tell people, I'm going to obey God and do this. And they might say, really? Does that really seem like the best thing to do? If you're obeying God, you can always know that is the best thing to do. And that's what Jesus said. Did she know what he was going to tell him to do? He tells him to do some pretty wild stuff here. And she just says, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Verse 6. So there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So here, we're, maybe we're backstage at the wedding, we're in the kitchen, or we're outside where the main feast is taking place because they're not really sure how this happens in the main feast. And the people in their party and the people concerned about the wine are worried about one thing. There's a dilemma going on in this other room wherever Jesus is, and there are six purification jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons. So imagine big, I mean, think about how big a jar it would have to be to hold 30 gallons Of water so here are six we could just call them bathtubs right here this is what they would go to to wash themselves so here are six bathtubs purification jars and we think of jar like this but these are big jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons and Jesus says fill them with water you're the servant mama's just told you do whatever he tells you to do and he says hey go get me 180 gallons of water (laughs) well you know is 180 gallons of water a lot of water? When we've run out of water, you know, uh, that last time we didn't have it for several days that Debbie was alluding to, you know, we were toting water. And thankfully, we had just baptized, I guess we had just baptized Wes Stevens, and so the baptistry was full, and so I was just coming out here and getting water, you know, uh, to take home and and use, really, to put in our toilets, and that seemed kind of sacrilegious, but we're like, well, you know, uh, you do what you gotta do. Uh, you know, that's where it was good to be a Baptist. He's like, that water's just all the tap water. It's not holy. We can use it for what we need to use it for. And so Dan Branham and I were up here getting water out of the Baptistry, and I was like, does this feel weird to you? He's like, a little. Uh, we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> but we were getting five gallons out of there at a time, and, and, we, and it was a lot of work just to get five gallons. Imagine being told to get 180 gallons. Back, you know, you know how much 180 gallons was back in the first century? It was 180 gallons. It was a lot of work to go get that in no short amount of time. So he says, go fill it. And, and it says here that they didn't just fill them up. it, it, it gives, They filled them to the brim. They, they did exactly what he told them to do, as much as they could possibly do. And then he says to them, now draw out some and take it to the master. Was that me? That sounded like I don't know what that was. Something, something just beeped. I don't know what that was. <laughs> what? <coughs> I don't know what's going on. What is it? Okay, I I, I probably. <laughs> what what is that? Did quit! Don't say her name. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but uh, maybe she'll get saved. Oh. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so he says, now after, after they filled the, wa- the basins to the brim, he says in verse 8, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. They obeyed again. And, you know, probably this seemed like the craziest thing that Jesus was asking them to do. Go fill up the bathtubs with water. Now go take some of that bath water and give it to the master of the feast. Can you imagine being asked to do that? And then look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. So we don't know exactly when the water became wine. But somewhere between drawing it and handing it to the master and him tasting it, it became wine. And he did not know where it came from. But what's there in parenthesis in my Bible? It's in parenthesis. It says, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast didn't know. The people who were going to enjoy the wine didn't know. And the master of the feast calls the bridegroom over who also doesn't know what happened. He says, you know what? Everybody serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, they bring out the poor wine. But you saved the best for last. He said, boy, when when the party starts, they bring out the good stuff, and then when people are drunk and they can't remember what they're drinking, they bring out the poor wine. But you brought the good stuff last. And look, at it says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And look at the next clause. And manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him three points of application number one a life yielded to Jesus is costly and difficult 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 through 13 Paul says to Timothy share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since it is his aim to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think it over. Think over what I'm saying to you for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Don't forget Jesus, he says. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says the saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Think about the cost associated with following Jesus. Paul likens it to the cost associated with being a soldier under the command of another or a champion athlete who wants to win the crown and does what it takes to win the championship or a hardworking farmer whose life is tied to the land and the calendar of seasons. Think of the one who's imprisoned for the gospel. What does the gospel cost Paul? It cost him his very freedom. And yet, why is he bound in chains? Because he's been obedient. He wasn't deciding what he was going to do for God and then asking God to bless it. He did what God said to do. We learn in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. See, Saul, he had big ideas. He said, we've just captured all these animals. We've just captured all these people. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take them back with us. And that's, that'll be a great thing for God. And then the prophet shows up and says, why am I hearing the bleeding of sheep? You were told exactly what God wanted you to do. He didn't want you to get your own ideas about what you needed to do. He wanted you to obey, not decide what you were going to sacrifice. We can think of obedience as God's will and God's desire for us. We have to put our desires, even the things that we want to do for God, have to be on the back burner until we're sure those are also God's heart and His desires for us. Being obedient requires us to embrace His desires and let His desires guide us. Why should we do that? Well, because a life yielded to Jesus is rich with its own rewards. Are the commands that Jesus has given us for our good? Yes. Are the commands that Jesus has given us the things that will provide us with true rest? Yes. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways? To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. For your good. Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do whatever he tells you to do. It's costly, it's expensive. It's going to cause suffering, it's going to require endurance. It's difficult to follow Jesus. And yet, he tells us that that obedience is for our good. A life yielded to Jesus is costly and difficult, but it is rich with joy and rewards. There are many people that have been Christians for many years, and you're still hanging on to some things that you haven't fully surrendered to God. And we hold on to those things, and we can kind of almost envision in our mind what fully following Christ would look like. And it scares us. And so we hold some things back. I think that's very normal in the Christian life. But you realize when you're holding those things back, what you're really holding back is joy and rewards? I mean, there's things that you can't experience in the Christian life unless you're fully surrendered. Now, you're probably experiencing some wonderful things, partly surrendered, because God just has mercy and grace on you, and that's just how wonderful He is. But when you stop and you think, what would a fully surrendered life of Chad Edgington look like? You know, I think that for myself. You should insert your own name there. But what would that be like? What are those areas you can identify right now where not fully surrendered? What could it be? What is Jesus telling you to do? Maybe you say, I'm not happy with my relationships. My friendships are not centered around Christ. Personally, I feel like I'm at a dead end because I'm afraid to give God my whole life. My marriage is missing spiritual intimacy. I'm constantly sad. I have no joy. I'm not sure what the point is. I'm doing destructive things because I'm super bored and I have no purpose. I just don't know what to do with my life. What would Mary say? (laughs) Just do what he tells you to do, do whatever he tells you to do. What is Jesus telling you to do moment by moment? Identify that and then do it. Where do you struggle with trusting Jesus? Because you don't trust Him, you don't obey Him. Percentage giving? You know, some people, I think you'd be surprised how freeing it would be if you would obey God in your generosity. If you would render unto God what is God's and stop stealing from Him. Because you're hog-tying your faith and, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that. There's a story of Zacchaeus the, that we remember when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. And what is the best part of the whole story? When do we really know that Zacchaeus has been changed? When he gets up and says, anybody I've wronged, I'm going to repay. And there's just this freedom when you read that story and you say, that's a changed man. And he's got the freedom that his heart has changed because he was stingy, and now he's generous. Are you holding back in that way? What about your habits? Are you convicted about prayer? Do 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 you say I need to pray more? Well, that that impulse to pray more is never coming from the devil. Okay, that's always a prompting of the Holy Spirit. What about your Bible reading? You're giving, you're serving, you're being a more consistent witness to your family and your co workers. Who is Jesus telling you to be right now? Is Is he telling you to be a more selfish person or a more selfless person? A more generous person or a less generous person? Is he telling you to be a more loving person or a less loving person? Is he telling you to be more patient or less patient? You know the answers to these questions. Is Jesus saying you need to insist on your own way? Or is he telling you to defer to the desires and the will and the the, the preferences of others? Where is following Jesus right now coming at a cost to you and where are you refusing to pay the price? There's a blessing in this passage. You know the blessing in this passage is when it says the, the, the master of the banquet did not know where the wine came from. But who knew? The servants. The servants. The lowest people there. <clears throat> this passage gives a blessing. The blessing is to see the glory of God. Who got to see the glory of God? In a way, the master s- saw something, but he didn't know it was the glory of God. Who did he attribute it to? The groom. He said, boy, you saved the best for last. Great job, buddy. And the groom was like, "Well, I don't know. I didn't know this was best. He probably thought, what's he talking about? They didn't know what was going on there at the banquet, did they? The bride and the groom, the master of the banquet, none of them were the ones who received the blessing. The blessing that night was for the servants. The servants knew. Verse 9. And those that were obeying Jesus, did they get to sit at the tables? No. Were they honored at the banquet? No. They had no privileges. No one was concerned about them. They were not honored. They were lowly servants. And they did not even get to drink the wine. But you know what they did drink? The glory of God. They drank the glory of God. They ran to get water. They did something hard. They took the bath water to the boss. They could have been the object of great ridicule for taking water in there to the master of the banquet instead of wine. They could have been reprimanded. They could have been fired, but they did what Jesus told them to do, even though it made no sense to them. How can we be like them? Do whatever He tells you to do. And, and, and I say that there's rewards, and there's, there's rewards and blessings. That, that come from obeying Jesus. And, and the way we hear that, because we're consumers, and we think like consumers, what you hear me say when I say that is, you should obey Jesus so you'll get good things. That's not what I'm saying to you. What I'm saying to you is, when you obey, when you fully trust and follow God, it's not going to just get you things. It's going to get you God. It's going to have you a relationship with God, where you're going to actually know Him. So you can know things about God. You can go to Sunday school and come to church. You can open your Bible. You can learn things about God, and you can get knowledge of God. But if you really want to have a relationship with God, if you want to know Him in a personal way, you have to follow Him. And the way that we follow Him is through obedience. The way that we know Him because notice what it says here. The disciples, they, they saw him. he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It gave them a reason to follow this man because they knew this man is telling the truth. This man can do amazing things. This man is from God. We want to know God. The primary reason that you should obey Jesus is that you can know God, you can know what he's like, you can have a relationship with him. Don't think of Christianity as something that fits into your consumer mindset. It are the commands for your good yes is Jesus ever gonna lead you astray no that's all to tell you that you can trust him because therefore you're good but what is your ultimate good that you would know the one who made you that you would know the one who loves your soul enough to send his son to die for you and pay for your sins. it's costly it's costly we want to be concerned with the wine We want to be part of the banquet. We want to be among the who's who. But following Jesus is not like that. It's hard. It's sacrifice. It's difficult. But the reward of it is that you get to see the glory of God manifest in your own life. And other people are going to say, oh, this is pretty good good wine. They'll completely misunderstand what's happening. There's all sorts of people in this world. All this stuff is going on And God is working all around all the time, isn't He? We do believe that. God is always at work. But some people are oblivious to it, and some people are zoned in. At that wedding, a bunch of people were oblivious, and they were enjoying all the blessings of God manifesting His glory. There's plenty of people in this country that are enjoying the blessings that we have because people hundreds of years ago decided to come here and follow God. And they set it up, they set up a system where we can enjoy the way God wants us to live as free people. And then that freedom was died for, there was a cost, people had to protect that freedom with their very lives. And and why do we do that? Because we, we want to secure the blessings of liberty and live the way God has called us to live. And the way God desires for us to live and the way God, because He loves us, has given us this this wonderful way to live as free people. And this is is one of the greatest things about being, I I think, uh, being an American, is being able to come in here, and we're not afraid at all to come in here and worship, are we? We, we We enjoy these freedoms, and we enjoy this wonderful liberty. And you know what? Everybody gets to enjoy it. But how many people are thinking today about what it costs for us to live this way, about the people that have paid the price for hundreds of years that we might live this way? It's the same way at, at this banquet. There are people that were enjoying that wine and the blessing of that good tasting wine. The, remember, the best wine that was probably ever tasted in the history of the earth, wine that Jesus made, that Jesus had provided. He said, well, "Where's the gospel in this?" Well, Jesus provides the wine. Jesus has provides the blood. Jesus provides a way for you to be saved and forgiven, a way for you to live and know God. And this is the provision, and how many people are just completely oblivious to it. Don't be like that. Be like one who's obeying Jesus, and because they're obeying Jesus, they're seeing the glory of God. And when they hear the gospel, it doesn't just sound like nothing to them, it sounds like their very life. This is how God has called us to follow him. So how do we do this? Two questions as I close. How do I know that, uh, excuse me, do I know what God has told me to do in, in, in whatever circumstance? So ask yourself these questions. In whatever circumstance I'm facing, do I know what God has said? The way I know what God has said is through his word. How am I commanded by Jesus to think, to feel, to speak, to conduct myself right now? And if the answer to that is yes, then do it. Question two, and then you're going to say, well, but doing that's going to be really hard. <laughs> okay. Question two is, does it really matter in my reasoning whether or not obedience seems difficult or not? And the answer is no. So I'm saying, do I know what God has said? Yes, God has told me to do this, and it's going to be really hard. Does it matter if it's really hard? Should it matter if it's really hard? It shouldn't matter if that's what God has said to do. All right, so I'm just trying to, Get you over the hurdle of your objection there. The answer to question one, of course, is yes. God's word touches on every aspect of life because God has spoken. The answer to question two is no, it doesn't matter if it's hard. The difficulty of the command doesn't matter when we consider who has given the command. The first command God gives us is to repent and believe. If you've not done that, today I urge you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you could begin to walk in the way. And you can begin to obey Jesus. It's a crazy world. Everybody's telling you how to live, everybody's telling you how to act. Herschel Walker could tell you how to act, a politician could tell you how to act, a radio talk show host, a false teacher, or your own heart. But there's one voice we need to listen to fill the jars, draw the water. Do whatever He tells you to do. And that's going to look like not being concerned with the wine. But it's going to look like being concerned in your life for the glory of God.